in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, my wife, Joan, and I, um, who are hosting this event, would like to thank you all for joining in this Zoom question and answer event on the COVID-19 pandemic, primarily from a clinical perspective. As we know with the evolution of social media, we all have been exposed to a plethora of conspiratorial theories and innuendos, which only serves to heighten concerns and to introduce fears into our consciousness. However, thanks to social media, even though the doors are currently closed, the church remains open forever. And we must give the Lord praise for that. So from the, the confinement and the comforts of our homes, we are continuously hearing from the Almighty as evident as in today's scheduled event. But before I introduce this afternoon's speaker, Sister John will lead us in a brief word of prayer. Sister John? Okay. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We glorify and magnify your wonderful name because you're an awesome God, a wonderful God, a powerful God, and an almighty God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness and your tender mercies towards us and for your compassion. And Heavenly Father, we're about to have a presentation on the coronavirus pandemic. There are so many questions, so many fears, but one thing we do know is that we can count on you because you are in control. Yes. And pro as Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And we know that we can trust in you, Lord, Amen. because you will direct our path. So Heavenly Father, we invite your Holy Spirit in this health day meeting and ask that you will bless it and anoint the speaker as we discuss this topic on the coronavirus. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Again, we'd like to thank our residence pastor, Pastor Brian Robinson and his wife, Faith, for joining us. And bearing in mind, this event is projected to be one hour in its duration. There will be a five minute, 25 minute sorry, presentation. After that presentation, you will have a series for questions and answers. And can I kindly regret request that people raise their hand or use their computer icon when raising a question. And this is in order to facilitate a seamless flow of events. Clear? Additionally, the event is going to be recorded and it will be shared. So if you don't want to be part of that, just you can opt out, but it will be recorded and it will be shared. And just to let you know also that this event is brought to you with the Life Builders combined with the Women's Department's Ministry of the New Mills and New Testament Church of God. Amen. Amen. Now, thank you. Before further ado, we'll, I will just introduce you to our speaker, well known speaker. His name is Dr. Stephen Lawrence. He is a general practitioner, as well as an associate clinical professor with, at Warwick University. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Stephen, Dr. Stephen Lawrence. Dr. Lawrence. Muted. Unmute. 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 Dr. Lawrence. No, unmute. Oh, sorry, it's okay. Okay, um, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Richard. I just wanted to check, um, first of all, just from housekeeping that everyone is able to hear me. Um, and I, I can see by nodding of heads that you can hear me, yes? Yes. Okay. Um, can I respectfully ask that all of your uh, microphones are muted um, just for the, the, the presentation? Um, it's only for 25 minutes, but if you do have any questions, please save those until the end, and I will spend the rest of the time actually addressing those, those questions. Um, the, the other thing to mention, and the only other important thing to mention, is that there is no such thing as a silly question in all of this. So if you think it's important to ask, it's very important to, 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 to ask the question, because in all likelihood, someone else will have asked it, and I've done a number of these presentations already. So during this time, I'm going to look at um, everything from basics because um, there's no point in talking about coronavirus or even a virus if we don't know what corona means or virus means. So we need to start from basics. And uh, then I will go on to explain some of the reasons why that basic information is dictating a lot of the advice that we have been given by the government. So everything I say to you has to be evidence-based. Now, um, I say that because there are a number of um, conspiracy theorists and theorems. There are a whole host of um, uh, concerns and anxieties that understandably have arisen. Um, but I think when you look at the evidence and we look at the proven evidence and you can go back, you can Google, even whilst I'm speaking, you can go online and you can see how all of this is evidence-based. Um, Hopefully it will give some reassurance, but also, I think for some people, it may also um, highlight some of their concerns because this is not a new issue. Okay, this is not a new issue. So if we go to definitions, um, a virus, uh, let's start with virus. A virus um, is a particle, is a, a piece of code. Okay, uh, and I'm just going to leave that there. Corona. Um, if anyone thinks of corona, that is basically crown. It's derivation meaning crown. And if you look at any of the images that you see on TV, there will be this enormous virus, usually in multicolours, and you'll see that it has these little projections like clubs on the surface of the virus. And it resembles a crown, if you were to look at it closely. Um, and it is because when you look at the virus under an electron microscope, the surface of the virus is smooth and then it has these projections out that look like crowns and that's why it is called coronavirus. This has been known, we've known about a, a coronavirus for a, the best part of 20 years. 20 years, so since 2000 we have been looking at uh, coronaviruses. Um, and corona, as I say, means, means crowned. Um, it's, it normally occurs in uh, in um, other mammals, it causes in cows and in enteritis, which is basically inflammation of the bowel, similar to a stomach bug. Um, in pigs, it causes a similar kind of 
um, infection. In chickens, it causes a cold. In humans, it causes a near fatal uh, condition called SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And that's why the other name for this is CoV-SARS. CoV meaning the, the coronavirus, so it's C-O-V means corona. CoV-SARS is the different name for this. And 19 just stipulates that it's, it's, the, it's the 19th variety that we have. So I've said that you can see it in different species. You can see it in pigs, it occurs in chickens, it occurs in cows, it occurs in bats, and latterly we've discovered that it now occurs in, in human beings. But the difference between coronavirus in animals and its presence in humans is that in humans it causes this severe acute respiratory syndrome, which in itself can in some cases cause death. And we'll explain why that is, uh, why, why that's the case in a second. So before I go into the different aspects, I have to explain what a virus is. So we know what corona is. So a virus, a virus is a piece of code. And the best way I can describe it is that by itself, a virus is like an idea. An idea in someone's head means it's, it's, it has potential. Nothing can happen with a virus by itself. Left to its own devices, coronavirus is completely and utterly harmless. The only way that any virus, whether it be coronavirus, the common cold, HIV, hepatitis, these are all viruses. The only way that they can actually have any kind of effect is that they need to somehow get into a cell and turn that cell around, implant itself, that code, into the cell so that the code starts to replicate similar viruses. So it's a cloning situation. I'm going to take a little time, just, just two minutes to explain this because it's very, very important because it explains everything behind um, the whole process. So a virus gets itself into a cell. It, there's no other way that a virus can replicate. And this is the case for every single virus on the planet. It gets into a cell, and I'm going to just talk about a cell. I'm not going to put the diagrams up because it, um, it might just take me, knock me off the system. So a cell, every cell has a nucleus. Every human cell has a nucleus. And the nucleus is basically the part that contains all of the DNA, the blueprint, the PDF document, the manual that's required to make a human body and to maintain a human body. So each of our cells contains a nucleus and that contains all of the information that is required to make you as a unique individual. So as you can imagine, it's a very important part of our, our bodies, but every single cell in the body has a nucleus. That nucleus, if you can consider that as the, as the, power, as the power area and the area that contains all the information, that nucleus will then release messenger, messenger codes to the cell itself. So the nucleus is in the center, and then it releases little chemicals, messenger cells, messengers to the cell, to parts of the cell to tell it to either produce more cells, protein, um, saliva for, for us, um, we, we can see digestive juices. Everything that happens in the body is basically detected 
is, is basically directed by the cell. Now, a virus, as I've said, is a, consider it to be a parasite, consider it to be a malicious code. What that virus does is that it gets into the cell, the nucleus is still the distance away, it gets into the cell, and what the virus does is that it hijacks the factory that decodes the information from the nucleus. So the nucleus is there, it sends out messages to the factory to tell it to make all the good things for the body. What the virus does, it intercepts that and inserts itself into the, the, the code of the factory. And it tells it not to produce things that are necessary for the maintenance of the body, but it tells these factories, these robots within the cell to produce new identical viral particles. So once coronavirus gets into a cell, it takes over this machinery and tells it, reprograms it to produce new viral particles. And what will happen is that the, it, it will speed up the process and the cell will produce so many viral particles that the cell explodes. When that cell explodes, it dies, and then millions of virus particles are then released in your body, which then infect other cells. And that process goes on and on and on very rapidly. And this is why over a period of a few days, you start off with one viral particles and it goes to many, many, many millions of viral particles. Now, and the, the reason that this is really important is that the advice that we're given is that we need to wash our hands. And the reason is that the, the virus is a piece of code. It can, it's like a, it's like a, it cannot do its own work unless it hijacks a cell. Um, and to, to quote a, a biblical phrase, it comes to kill, steal and destroy. That's all a virus can do. A virus never gives you anything good. It just gives you more viral particles. And because the cell is busy doing all of this work, instead of producing good things for the body, it's producing more viral particles. It means that the normal functions of the body are being ignored. So the body is not producing any defense. It's not producing any of the right secretions. It's not producing any of the right uh, functions that need are needed and we take for granted on a daily basis. Now, if we wash our hands, if you come into contact with the virus particles and you wash your hands, the virus does not get chance to insert itself into a cell. And that's, that's the whole reason for washing our hands. Because if you get, we will all come into contact, most of us will have come into contact with viral particles with coronavirus. Washing your hands basically gets rid of that. And you normally need to wash your hands for about 10 seconds to do that, 10 to 15 seconds. But we make sure that we say happy birthday twice because we make sure that it's done properly. Okay, so you make sure the hands are washed properly. But you'd need to do that roughly every 20 to 30 minutes every day because we touch our faces. And I've been watching even here on the screen, many of you habitually will touch your faces because it's something that we always do. And that will take viral particles in cells to our hands and that can be passed on. And these particles of code can lie dormant on hard surfaces for days. Petrol pumps, uh, cash point machines, anything that's uh, a surface, it will actually fall onto. The reason that we look at uh, distancing for two meters is that if someone coughs, that cough, the sputum is coming out at around 30 miles an hour. 
but it will fall to the ground after about one meter. So if you keep two meters apart, it's really unlikely unless you're very unfortunate that it's going to transmit from one person to the other. What happens now to the body in why do people die from coronavirus? Well, one of two things will happen once this is in the body. It's taken over the nucleus, it's reprogrammed the factory making part of the cell to produce more viral particles. And as you can imagine, this will continue to go on and on and on until one of two things happen. Either the person will die or the body will recover. Those are the only two outcomes that are possible. And that's the only two, those are the only two outcomes, even if you have a cold. If you have a cold, you either die from the cold or you recover. A cold is still a virus. But why is coronavirus different than a common cold? Well, with coronavirus, what it's very, very, well, you could say, one, one would say it's not very clever in a way because the clever virus, a sensible virus would make sure that it doesn't kill the host because once you kill the host, that's the end of the virus. A dead person cannot pass on the virus because it needs living cells to produce. So the most successful virus is actually the common cold because it's very mild, it doesn't make us too unwell, and so it gets a chance to transmit from person to person. The coronavirus does something very different though. It gets into the cells, it takes over the machinery, it produces more virus. That triggers the, what we call T killer cells, which are basically like police, um, almost like the police of the, of the body, your policing cells. Once they realize that cells have been affected by and infected by a virus, they will actually migrate from the circulation to the area that's been affected. So in our case, it will be the throat, the windpipe and the lungs, because all of these, many of these cells have been infected by the coronavirus. And what these T killer cells will do, T killer cells, is that they will say they're programmed to destroy every single cell that has been affected by the coronavirus because the body determines that those cells are collateral damage. They can always be replaced. So the T killer cells come in and they start this waging of a war um, and they destroy all of the infected cells. But what then happens is that in this melee, it, it uses up a lot of energy. So you become tired, your temperature rises because of the in increased exchange of heat. And a lot of these cells die, which, and they have to be coughed up. So you start to cough up this debris, you cough up um, yellow sputum. These are just dead cells. But also because these cells have come towards your respiratory system, it causes thickness. It causes a thickening which means that the gases have to go through this thickness of inflammation, which is why we become short of breath. So now you have someone with a cough, a fever, and they're short of breath. At this stage, the outcomes could still be positive because these T killer cells are killing the infected cells. And for most people, and I should say this is very important, for most people, they will become unwell and the T killer cells will win the battle and they gradually start to get better. 
Once these T killer cells have finished their job, then you get the um, follow-up troops, as I call them. These are what we call the um, memory cells. And the memory cells will come along and they will look at the virus and they'll say, this is what you look like. So it, it's, it memorizes the shape of that virus. Remember I said that it looks like a crown. So your cells will come along and the, the memory cells will recognize the shape of that, that, that particular virus, so that you are unlikely to suffer again to the same degree. Because the next time that virus comes along, these memory cells will say, hold on, we've seen this before. Let's get the right kind of cells together and they will attack it before you even get to the stage of uh, a, a cough or a fever. So it, it goes away very quickly. And that's why having had coronavirus and recovered, provided that the virus doesn't change its shape, you are then immune for a period of time. Okay, And that's what they're testing for when they're testing for the antibody. They're testing to see whether you are now showing signs of those cells that are now protecting you okay so so that's 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 what happens if things are positive what happens in the person who doesn't recover this is now in explaining this this will this will hopefully show you how corona dif how corona differs from a common cold or from any other kind of virus as I've said to you, corona has infected your cells, the respiratory cells. It's taken over the factories and caused them to produce more, more coronavirus. The cells have split. Sorry, I think someone's got their microphone on. Um, and, and, the, the, and so it started to spread. The T killer cells have come in and they've tried to overcome the situation. What then happens is that the coronavirus causes confusion among the T killer cells. It causes confusion. It throws a spanner in the works so that these T killer cells become confused and not only start attacking the cells that are infected, but start also attacking every other cell of the body, even the healthy ones. We don't know why that happens, but it seems to happen in some people more than others. Once it starts to be redirected to attacking every other cell, that is a very, very powerful, your body is very, very powerful at killing anything that stands in its way because it will work to, to, for the good of the rest of the body. But now it's confused. It's like, it's like the coronavirus has thrown its smoke into the room. And so they start, the, the, the T killer cells start to shoot its own cells. And so you get into a, a state of terminal decline where the body just destroys itself. The body turns in on itself and it destroys itself. And those people sadly will, will die from, from coronavirus. Why that happens in some people than others, we're starting to work that through. And it seems as if there are certain people who are going to be more likely to suffer this kind of disruption. And it tends to be those people where the immune system has been working for decades and decades and decades, so a long period of time, and therefore it's not working as efficiently and is more likely to become confused in this situation of, of cellular war. So that's one situation. Anyone who has a weakened immune system, irrespective of their age, so anyone who has been given medication to suppress 
their immune system because they've had an organ transplant or someone who has undergone treatment for cancer within a, reason, a period of about six months, the immune system takes about six months to, to recover after cancer. So for that period of time, after they have had treatment for cancer, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, the immune system is suppressed. And again, under attack, it will tend to become more confused and there's a greater risk of it turning in on itself. Those are easy ones to explain, but there are other conditions, people with diabetes, people who are overweight, um, people from the uh, black and minority ethnic groups, they have a greater risk of not recovering, not being in the first group, but being in the second group, whereby the immune system becomes confused and starts to attack itself. And there are various theories around that, which we can, which we can explore if we've got a little bit uh, more time at the end, but I'll just leave that there if people want to ask me questions. The other point that I want to make around the, the coronavirus is that in the event of someone becoming unwell with this, we're told that uh, we should remove ourselves from society, we should socially isolate. Um, and the reason for that is that obviously we're wanting to prevent other people from, from, from getting this. We're told to socially isolate for 14 days. And the argument for this is that the immune, this process that I've just described, this starts within hours of you being exposed to the virus. By day five, so just over 100 hours after, by day five, you have started, if you are going to show any symptoms, your immune system has actually gone and got to the stage where these T killer cells are starting to work. It only takes about 100 hours and your T killer cells are working. So you will know by then whether you have symptoms. If day one to five, you have not developed any symptoms, your immune system is not responding to this and there's no problem there. And then we, why do we say that day, day 14? Day 14 is because in most people, that whole process will have completed by around day 12 to 13. So if you're going to get worse and recover, by, by two weeks, you are at the stage of recovery. Those people who aren't going to recover, they have caused NHS 111 by that time because they're not getting better at two weeks, they're actually getting worse. And those are the people who are more likely to end up in hospital. Okay, so those are the time directives. Finally, I just want to just uh, mention why is it that some people are, appear to be unaffected? So we know that women are, seem to be slightly less affected. Children and young people seem to be uh, less frequently affected by the worst outcomes. That's not to say they're not infected, they're less affected. So it's possible that they may be what we call super carriers. They come into contact with the virus, but their immune systems are so quick at identifying it that the most that they may get is a sore throat, is a slight fever, something just like a common cold. And before they know it, the immune system has dealt with it just within hours. So if that is the case, then those people will not show any severe signs. The problem that we have though, is that those people may still 
be, be passing on the infection. So these people may still have the infection, they may still pass it on, but they don't know that they have it. And that is a concern because if they don't know that they have it, then they will not know that they're actually risking passing it on. And that's why the, the advice around social distancing is so very important. As a doctor and healthcare professional, I come into contact with a lot of people, some of whom may be infected. And it, it introduces this issue called viral load. So those of you who've who have children, who've had children, will realize that if you have a child who has, say, chickenpox, chickenpox is just another virus. If you have a child who gets chickenpox in the family, they'll get the spots, they'll be itchy for a few days. And as I've just described, that whole process will go through, the T killer cells will be activated and they will get better within a few days. And then the body remembers that, so they cannot get chickenpox again for the rest of their lives, usually. Now, if you have two children in the household and the second child gets chickenpox, the second child will get it to a worse degree than the first child. If you have three children in the home and the third child, you get one child who gets chickenpox, followed by child two, followed by child three, the third child to get chickenpox in the household may often be so ill that they need to be sent into hospital. And it introduces this issue called viral load. The more exposure you get to the virus, irrespective of how healthy you are, the greater your risk. So that's why one of the reasons they feel is that you're seeing a higher instance amongst health healthcare professionals where they, they do sadly succumb to it and fatally succumb to this because you're coming into contact with these with the people who are infected on a regular basis and your immune system basically becomes overwhelmed and if you look at the specialists ENT surgeons so ear nose and throat who are getting close to their patients looking close into their faces we had several consultants who died from that. We don't see many, many radiologists. We haven't seen one radiologist. They just look at x-rays. So they're not coming into contact with patients. So the closer your contact with someone who has been infected, the greater your risk. Again, hence this information about social distancing. And that's why we are now, as, as, as doctors, we're now uh, consulting on a distance basis. We're keeping people away from direct contact with us. Because whilst few people a few people may be immune by now, no one is completely invulnerable to this. So everyone can actually get, get this, but not everyone will suffer to the same degree. Okay, so the number of things, in fact, I'll just mention one other thing and then I'll actually open it up for questions because I think this is where you get the most of the meat from this. Another analogy to use for the coronavirus is that of the uh, cocoon. Everyone knows the, the, the cuckoo is the bird. What does the cuckoo do? It, it lays, well, not all species of cuckoo do this, so I should be fair, not all species of cuckoo, but there is a species of cuckoo that, that lays its egg in another bird's nest. Okay, and so that cuckoo does no work in bringing up its young. The, another bird does that. So it puts its egg in there. The egg is not recognized as being different by the other bird and then it's so it's, it's there amongst the other eggs and so therefore 
it, it raises that cuckoo, but that cuckoo then is larger and it then tends to push all the other eggs out of the basket. And if you can think of the coronavirus, I know it's almost the same in terms of the, even, even the alliteration, the same C starting, the coronavirus does that. The coronavirus by itself is completely harmless. It can only become active once it gets into the cell, once it takes over the cell. Once it does that, it uses the cell's resources, the cell's energy to produce more and more virus. And the only way, short of a vaccine, the only way that we can actually overcome this is, is really by ensuring that we reduce the likelihood of it passing through the population. Once we get to a certain level of exposure, remember I told you that once your body has seen this, your immune system is then prepared and armed. Once we get to a level of exposure within the population of coronavirus, whilst it will always be there, I don't think this will ever go away. This will still be with us in 10 years' time. But once we get to a certain level of exposure in the, in the community, and that is 80%, 8 out of 10 people having either had coronavirus or been immunised, then it is very, very difficult for coronavirus to actually pass through the population. Why do I say that? Um, that happens with measles. Measles is a virus. Measles used to cause death. It used to cause um, problems with respiratory damage. It used to cause problems with the eyes bleeding. Um, measles now, we hardly see. Whooping cough, we don't see because we've got what, what is called herd immunity. Herd immunity has got to 80% and therefore it cannot spread through the population. So either by, by way of vaccine or by way of people being infected, once we get to 80%, whilst coronavirus will be with us, I think probably forever, it won't be a problem. The question is whether you trust the effectiveness of a vaccine whether you trust uh, that the vaccine has been developed so that it is not going to itself cause problems because there are many examples um, in medical history where a vaccine has actually caused more problems. The, the cure has been worse than the, than the, the disease itself. Um, and some would argue that we're doing the wrong thing in terms of bringing people to, into isolation. We should let people get this and let their systems actually recover. But again, that's something for discussion. Okay, so I'll just end um, by concluding that coronavirus, um, it's not new. We've known about this for 20 years. Um, if you go back, you'll see that this has been studied as a, it normally comes up under the heading of COV, so COV, meaning coronavirus, S-A-R-S, severe acute respiratory syndrome. So it's not new. We've been this, the scientists have been studying it for many years. It's just that the, the point at which it has become transmissible and, and um, replicating within humans, that is new. Um, given that it has been studied for almost two decades, there are some concerns that this might not have been so much due to nature um, but due to uh, an issue with the, with the um, process of, of investigation, of 
studying it and of accidental release. But again, that, that's, uh, that's something that we don't have any clear data on. Okay, so I'll, I'll leave it there and open uh, the uh, area for questions, any questions. I can see there are a number of questions already coming through the system. Shall I, in fact, I'm happy for you, um, you're, you're muted, uh, Richard. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Steve, for that presentation. Well received. Is there any questions for the doctor, please? There is some on the chat. There are some in the chat area already. Okay, so if we just look at some of this then. Uh, why are people, yeah, sorry, I was gonna say, um, why are people with diabetes and asthma more vulnerable? Um, I think very important question. Well, I think it's, that's a very important question because it does actually direct us to two things. Asthma um, affects the respiratory system. COVID is termed COVID SARS, COVID SARS, because it is a severe acute respiratory syndrome. Syndrome just means a collection of, of symptoms and diseases. Um, severe, we don't need that to explain that. Acute, it comes on very quickly, respiratory affecting the lungs. So anyone with a pre-existing respiratory condition, not just asthma, if they have chronic obstructive airways disease, if they have sarcoidosis, which affects the, the, the respiratory system, if they have asthma, any kind of respiratory disease makes them more vulnerable to, to uh, COVID. Um, diabetes doesn't seem, on the face of it, it doesn't seem so um, easily explainable until you look at what is actually going on in diabetes. Remember I told you that with COVID, it doesn't just affect the respiratory system. It can also affect the kidneys and it can also affect the heart. People with diabetes, the main uh, mortality from diabetes comes from cardiovascular disease, heart attack and stroke. So we know that 75%, three out of four people, 75 out of 100 people diabetes will die from a heart attack or a stroke. Now, the better your, your control in diabetes, the less your risk, COVID or no COVID. So good glycemic control, good control of the blood glucose, good control of the blood pressure, good control of the cholesterol reduces the risk. So not all people with diabetes are affected to the same degree. Poor control means poor outcomes undetected diabetes, and I think this is really important because diabetes exists in about half a million people in the UK who don't even know they've got it. Mm. Half a million people in the UK have diabetes and don't even know they've got it. We've diagnosed 3.2 million people, but that 500,000 number, if they were to get COVID, they are in a double jeopardy situation because they have diabetes, they don't know it, but furthermore, they have not had the chance to have treatment to reduce their risk. So diabetes per se won't put, doesn't mean that you're going to have a bad outcome. Poorly controlled diabetes absolutely does increase your risks of a very bad outcome with this. Um, 
What else is there? Ah, how, come, how long can the virus uh, live in an individual? Um, well, the virus, as I said to you, the, the virus will continue on in that person until one of two things happens. Um, either it kills you or your body gets over it. Usually your body will actually get over this in most people within two weeks. If you get to two weeks and you still have symptoms, most of the people who have sadly died with this have had symptoms for three to four weeks before they've even come into contact with a healthcare professional because they've just become more and more breathless as the body tries to compensate for the fact that it has, um, it's unable to actually overcome this. So the longer you have symptoms, the greater the, the, the poor prognosis. Um, in fact, if there's, if there's, there's quite a number of questions, but I'm quite ha happy to um, take questions verbally or, or just go through them on, on, on the chat. Um, there's a question, um, Dr. Steve, from Angela Walker. And the question is, what would you advise for wearing masks or long periods of time? For a long period okay. of time, what's your position yeah. on that? There's a lot of controversy over masks. Okay, when I was a medical student, I was told that we wear masks in order to protect, not ourselves, but the, pa the patient. So in an operating theatre, um, if I'm assisting someone in an operating theatre, I will wear a mask in order to stop potential infection coming from me to the person. Masks, masks do also protect the, the recipient, the, the wearer, but masks only work for a period of time. If you can imagine, they have um, tiny little, they're porous, otherwise you wouldn't be able to breathe through them. And the aim is that they actually stop droplets from going through. Anything that's smaller than a droplet will come straight through. But considering that, I've said to you before that the COVID is, is transmitted by droplets. If you stop the droplets from going out, then you prevent the spread. But not all masks are the same. And if you wear a mask for long enough, then it becomes pointless. Okay. So after your mask has become wet, so your, your mask, you've been wearing your mask for long enough so that it becomes wet around you. It's like a sponge. So the sponge has now become wet. So in, in fact, your, your mask is then a problem because once it's wet, if you're coughing, if you put enough force, you're basically pushing out particles from the mask. So it really does, how long you can wear a mask, it really does depend on what you're doing. But most masks would start to lose, the ordinary masks, I don't have one here in my office, the ordinary masks that you see, the sort of um, uh, little blue or, or green ones, I would say they would last just a few minutes. The N95 masks, so the proper ones, we call them fit, fit um, tested masks with a little tiny um, filter in the side, you can wear those all day. But my concern is that people take their masks off, their masks are wet, they take them off, and then they put them, what do you do with the mask when you take it off? If you put your mask in your pocket, you've just infected right. potentially your, your pocket. What, we are told that when you remove your mask, your mask is contaminated, even if you are, this is assuming that you're even, whether you're infected or not, and that has to be thrown away. Your gloves have to be taken off, again, we're told, in a specific way so as not to touch the outside surface and you throw that away. Um, 
but in, in everyday life, that's just not going to happen to that degree because we, we don't have the number of masks, we don't have the number of gloves to be able to do that with any degree of efficiency. So the, and this is why the basics of ensuring that you wash your hands, the simplest thing of washing your hands is, is the best way of ensuring that you're keeping safe. The virus cannot get into your cells unless it has the opportunity to do so. And it normally gets that opportunity through droplets or through contact with the hands. Yes, Dr. Stephen, another question from our brother Jewel. He says the news says that COVID-19 is affecting people of black and Asian and minority people more than the other rest of the population. Where can I find any authorized and verified data or analysis on this? Okay, so this, this is another important question. This uh, information actually was first published um, a week ago on Monday. So it's, it's um, about 10 days old, just over 10 days old. Um, it is very, very accurate data. Um, and I'll break it down because I received this directly and I'm happy to leave a link for this information as well. I'll, I'll send this through so that you can see this yourselves. If you look at the headline, and I always caution you about looking at headlines because they only tell you part, part of the story. Um, if you look at the headline, it would say that people who are of um, um, black origin are four times more likely to die, not to get coronavirus, because we all ha have the same risk, but are more likely to die from coronavirus uh, compared to an equivalent a Caucasian person. Now, that is a headline figure which by itself sounds, grabs headlines, but doesn't really mean much to me as a, as a doctor, as a scientist. I want to look at the detail. Included in that is deprivation, um, our, what we call additional diseases, we call comorbidity, um, standard of living. Once you factor those in, so you, you, you account for those, the risk goes down from four, one to four, so four times um, that, that of a Caucasian person to just under two. It's actually 1.8 something, I, I, probably 1.82. Now that risk, so there is, there is still an increased risk, but it's just under two, but we call it two because it's easier. And I think, and my theory is, is and I, I'm um, on my, I've established a new YouTube channel and I wanted to put this out there because I'm absolutely convinced that this is a contributor. I mentioned to you before, just a few moments before, that we have around half a million people walking around with diabetes that don't know that they have it. And we know that diabetes is, um, a black person is twice, two to three times more likely to develop diabetes than a Caucasian person. And a person of South Asian origin is five to six times more likely to develop diabetes than a Caucasian person. Now that's, that, irrespective of anything else, that's just the case. That's, that's um, it's to do with insulin resistance, which is for a different talk. So if you consider that that's the case and that these people are there in the population, I would expect there to be a high proportion of people from the BAAE BAA groups with diabetes who don't know they've got diabetes, who sadly have not had the chance for intervention to actually control their risk factors, who then fall foul 
of, of, of uh, coronavirus um, and therefore their risk is their likelihood of an adverse outcome is, is, is likely to be worse. It might not be the full explanation, but I'm sure that it is what we are uncovering uh, is not just um, inequality and deprivation and the way in which people interface with, with their um, the medical opportunities to seek help, but also it is, it is down to this hidden diabetes. Can I just jump in and um, say that Elmay's raised her hand. I think she's got a question. Um, sure. I, I'm going to, I don't know whether I've muted her or, um, or not, but um, Elmay, if she wants to, to, to um, talk. Um, and um, can you repeat the name of the mask that you said that is the recommended one? Not um, so N, N for November, N95, N95. N95. Yeah. Thank you. You will be hard pressed to get hold of any of these because they are, um, even healthcare professionals, even within the surgery I work, um, we use ordinary masks. We cannot get hold of N95 masks. Um, and I, I'll show you what I'm saying. My daughter, who actually works on a COVID ward, she's a doctor on, on the COVID wards. Um, she has only just got N95 masks, having worked on the wards for the last several months wow. on COVID, COVID patient wards. So um, you might be able to get them online, but they charge, they'll charge for something that only costs a few pounds to make. They'll be, you'll be charged tens of pounds, if not a hundred pounds for, for, for something. Oh. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's getting silly. But N95 masks, is what, that's what the WHO, the World Health Organization, recommends um, as, as, as the best masks for this. And, and that you. will actually stop the, the virus from being passed on. Thank you, Dr. Steve. There's a, a question from our brother, Robert Johnson. No, no, Elmay. Oh, sorry, Elmay. 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 Sorry. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, right. I just wanted to ask, because I know you said um, the masks are sort of in, ineffective after a few minutes. So is it contractable, the virus, if you're not wearing one at all, like you're walking down the street and, um, you know, walking around the shops and can you pick yeah. it up from... Yeah. It's, again, it's a very important question that I've had from a lot of patients. Um, so I'll just make sure I've, I've understood you correctly that um, given that masks are limited, um, are we, should we be wearing masks all the time or can you get, can you still catch this when you're out and about? Um, yeah. If you are out and about and you're maintaining a distance of two metres, whilst you can't say it's impossible, it is highly unlikely, very, very unlikely that you can come into contact with, even if someone was infected, that, that it would be passed on to you. Because you're not, you're, you're out and about, you're out in a large space, you're two metres apart, it, it would be very, very difficult to pass it on to the next person. That argument doesn't hold if you're in an enclosed environment. Yeah. Um, if I'm in this office and I'm sharing it with someone else, we're breathing the same air. Mm. If you're in the same house, you're breathing the same air. Um, if you're in a supermarket, now that's a halfway house. That's not in your home. That's not outside, but it's in a large area. Now, if you maintain a distance of two metres, to say that you are as safe as if you were outside would be incorrect. 
because there are currents, they've got air conditioning, there are, there are currents of air going around. And under those circumstances, it is sensible to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. If you go to a supermarket, it is definitely sensible to wear a mask because you are in close proximity with, with, with other people. Now that mask may only last uh, a few minutes, but it's still better to have a mask than, than nothing at all. Um, and if it's anything like I had yesterday, going along to a, a large supermarket, um, and despite the tannoy announcements, people will still come right up into your personal space um, because they want to get that broccoli or whatever. So, so it's, it is sensible to wear a mask because you, you know what you might want to do. It's like driving on the road. You, you might drive safely, but you have to account for other people who might not think in the same way. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Okay. Dr. Steve, just a question from me. Would you promote a scarf around your nose and your mouth as opposed to a mask? And I say this because I assume that when you wear a mask once, the chances is it becomes no good after that once. With a scarf, at least you can wash it and reuse it. Yeah. So, okay. so, so the issue with a scarf, um, masks work um, on a, the principle that they have um, a density of, of material that, that guarantees um, a certain degree of porosity. So it, it means that the air can pass through, but droplets can't pass through. Um, a scarf, it depends on your scarf. If you have a woolen, big woolen scarf, then if you compare the size of the particles that can come through, the scarf has massive holes in it and the particles just come straight out. So it really does depend on the, on, on, on the scarf. The more layers of material you have, the more filter you have. So I would say if you wanted to make if you want to have a makeshift um, face mask, you can do that, but I wouldn't simply rely, physics would tell me that don't just rely on one layer of material. The most dense layer um, is, is nylon, isn't it? So nylon, but you could barely breathe through nylon. Um, but, but you'd need to have different layers. Wool, I think, is just far too porous, um, but the different layers would help, help to at least slow down the passage of any um, of any droplets. When you cough, if you if you cough because you've you've developed a tickle, that if you look at the um, the projection, that comes out at about thirty miles an hour. But it won't go much further than a meter, and the droplets will fall to the ground after a meter. So two meters distance gives you all the protection that you need, assuming that it isn't being carried in currents um, and there was one um, model that I saw recently on TV, which makes sense that if someone was in a different aisle in a supermarket and they coughed in that aisle, it could potentially be carried in currents over to you in the, in the other aisle. So that's why I would say that it is definitely worth wearing masks. Um, and even if you do a makeshift one, that, that's, that's fine. Um, it's better than nothing. Just inter interrupt. Uh, Sharon's been um, Sharon Grant's been showing a, a mask that's a homemade one. Can you see that? Yep. Yes, I can. Yes. Is that mm -hmm. one suitable? So, as I say, it looks very pretty, but I'm more interested in in what is what the constituent parts are. Um, so I can see that she's got a. It looks like some muslin in there. So she's got at least another layer. That principle 
is important. I think the more layers, as long as you can breathe through it, the more layers you have, the better. Okay. I'd like to have a, qu have a question, please, if it's possible. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Steve, um, um, from a spiritual perspective, I'm actually looking at this coronavirus that is being caused by, um, it's, uh, it's a work of the devil. It's been actually orchestrated or, or, or sort of released from the realms of the spirit. I mean, um, I know it's actually, I know it's biological implications actually in terms of, I mean, this COVID, the, the virus, and of course, of what you've actually uh, um, explained or pointed out. You know, I mean, if I come to you now as a doctor, I mean, what would you say to me? What would you really, I mean, advise me to do? Because bear in mind that I know that this actually, actually was actually caused by work, by the works of the devil as a Christian. I, I don't I know if it's mentioned sexually. Sorry, but yeah, but. Yeah, I, I, I have been looking at papers dating back to 2005. So 15 years ago. Um, which were in peer-reviewed journals. So again, if you were to go online and if you were to put into your search engine coronavirus 2005, it will take you to a publication in the, there's one in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's a whole host of um, uh, journals. So this is not new. Um, what, to, to answer your question directly, there are we have, we have research, we have tools for research, and research generally is good because research helps us to better care for ourselves, for humanity. And I think that God gives us that, um, that tool, that intelligence, um, those resources. But as with anything else, in the wrong hands, it can cause problems. So I would be less likely to say that this is um, the work of the devil, because it's, it's rather like saying that money is bad. Um, research is research can be good, research can be bad. Mistakes can be made. Um, there are some people who feel that this is something that has been deliberately released. When you look at the research, when you see how much research has been going on, it's it would be unlikely. I think that would be unlikely, um, and it would take. I, it, would, it would take such a degree of organisation that I don't think that anyone would be able to pull it off. However, I do think that um, when something like this happens, as with any disaster, as with any adverse outcome, there will be people who will use it to their own means. And some will see good come out of it, some will see um, evil coming out of it. Um, and I, I've seen people say that, you know, within a few days, if you look at satellite images of the, of the Earth, that the, uh, the, the plume of, of pollution over many of the major cities, cities of the world disappeared. You know, um, people are now um, slowing down. They're not, they're not rushing out. The crime has gone down because people are in their homes all the time. There isn't the opportunity for crime. People who would have been knocked down and killed, children on the roads, they're not being killed. Yes, people are dying from coronavirus, and that's, that's awful. But I think it needs to be put into the, into the perspective of what else is going on. And in fact, your question is important because it's actually um, triggered my memory for something else. 
Coronavirus is important. Coronavirus has killed a lot of people, and I don't want this statement to be taken um, in the and in other than the intention that it is made, and, and this is looking at it scientifically. So in respect and, and, and respecting the losses that people have had and will have going forward. One of my colleagues actually um, is just recovering from coronavirus up in Leicester, one of the professors. In the UK, every year, out of a population of 65 million people, 660,000 people will die every year. Every year, even before coronavirus, around 66, between 600,000 and 660,000 people. Now, if you break that down, that means that every single, for every single week of the year, we've got 12,000 people dying. That's a lot of people. How many people have had died from coronavirus? Mm. I think over 33,000 in total. So 33,000 out of a number of, uh, we're, we're expecting around 600,000 people to die this year. And that's, I mean, I, as a doctor, I hear we, we I will go to, I, I used to, um, I don't do it so much now, but I'd go, be going to the mortuary to declare people, to not to declare people dead, but to complete death certificates and that's that's normal that's that's normal so what we need to look at is what we call the excess mortality flu every single year flu kills 10,000 people but we don't get a day by day minute by minute blow in terms of who has died from flu each year even though we have a vaccine flu still kills 10,000 people every single year so the reason I mentioned this is that coronavirus is important, but by far the majority of people do recover from it. It's a new virus, so it's in this new age of social media and um, micro-reporting and dissection of the news, we are getting, or the general public is getting information that we as medical professionals would get, I would say, on a, a weekly basis. So there are times when the funeral directors will say to me, Gosh, we've had a number of young people die. We had a baby die this week. We had now here we're, we're getting. As a doctor, I'm being told that um, if someone dies, I do not. I was we would we had a, a, something come out from NHS England saying that we, if we got to a stage of um, of desperation, that we would not even need to follow the rule of going to see someone at home. Ideally, we should, but if we thought that we would be, we would be at risk, we could uh, we could confirm death by remote and and say what we think they have died of, and that in itself would be sufficient. Now, under normal circumstances, that would never be acceptable. That would be illegal. So, if you put that someone has died from coronavirus and they've had pneumonia or they had diabetes or they had heart disease or they had dementia, they would have died from that, that um, either their pneumonia, their, their, their heart disease, their, their dementia. But because coronavirus has come on the top of that, that is what appears on the death certificate. And then next line is the pneumonia or the heart disease or the dementia. Mm -hmm. But 
coronavirus is almost stealing the limelight. Um, and I'm saying that advisedly because it is the condition that is actually pushing people to that, to that level, really. Mm. Muted. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> because we're still on, this, on the same topic, I'm just going to slip in this, this question and then Elle May can come in um, with her question. There's some um, questions by is, Robert as well. Is, yeah. Is there a possibility um, of having a second wave? Um, I would say that there is not just a possibility. I think in all probability it will happen. We will get a second wave. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's expected. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, when it does happen, I don't think, again, people will be there accusing the government. They did tell us that we're likely to see a second wave. They've opened it up. They're encouraging people to actually go out. Um, and the expectation is that this will result in a lot more people becoming infected and that the death rate will go up, but that it shouldn't reach the level that it overwhelms our ability to cope, the NHS to cope. But yes, it will go up. The fact that I went for a run this morning and I saw a lot of people out there. Um, we will be infecting each other. Mm -mm. So mm. We'll go up, but it's not anyone's fault. It's, it's what we need to do. We need what? to get that. That needs to happen. One quick question, Dr. Steve, as well. Those that have already contracted the virus and has recovered, is there a, is there a second wave of of it of them um, having it again or ah so so this is the this is the point so remember I said that once your T killer cells have destroyed the cells that have been infected, and you get the memory cells coming and recognizing the shape of that virus as a crown, your immune system for a period of time is protected. You are protected. You cannot easily get this again the only reason that you can get this again in the short term because your memory cells will eventually forget so you will become more prone um, but that's years down the line one would hope but the only reason that you would actually become susceptible again soon is if the virus mutates by mutating i mean it changes its shape in such a way that your memory cells see it as a new they don't recognize it and um, that's probably unlikely. That's unlikely. So if you have had coronavirus and you've recovered, then in actual fact, you are immune and you are safe in the second wave that will come. Um, unless, of course, you, know, you, you have cancer and you have chemotherapy or something else to knock your immune system down. But in a normal person, they are safe. Okay, and then once you get to 80% of the population who've had that, then coronavirus will be with us, I think, forever, but it will not be an issue. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, can I just ask um, Elmay to ask her question? Because she's had a hand raised for some time. Okay, I just wanted to ask, you know, with the, like the home remedies that we're doing, like the ginger and lemon and garlic and honey and all those sort of things that we might be taking is that of any effect okay does, um, does it help 
I think, again, it's a really important question because I think it, it's, it highlights how resourceful we are, how resourceful man is under, under threat. Um, and the fact that people will try things that on the face of it to us as scientists would think to be ridiculous. Um, it means some, some people are actually finding that it is helping them. Then, as, as I mentioned to you at the very start of this, anything I say to you has to be evidence-based. So I can't just tell you what I think would be a good idea. So um, there's no evidence that honey, uh, garlic, um, lemon, uh, what else did you mention, sorry? Ginger. Ginger. There's no evidence that any of those will actually help you with coronavirus. I can tell you that ginger is great in terms of reducing your likelihood of feeling sick. If you feel nauseated, yes. it's fine. Use the ginger and that will help you. In if you have a sore throat, if you use honey, then the honey will give you some symptomatic relief because it will help to coat the back of your throat, won't help you with coronavirus. Um, uh, what, what else was there? Ginger, lemon, honey, garlic. Garlic, um, garlic will help you with um, heart disease, but won't do anything for coronavirus. What will help, and again, this is an important thing, as, well, I was going to say, especially for, for um, people who are black or Asian, but also for Caucasians, because we found that the incidence of vitamin D deficiency mm. is more widespread than we would have thought to be the case um, before. Now, people are low in vitamin D, there's papers coming out stating that they are more likely to suffer adverse effects from coronavirus. Mm. And, and the reason that this is, is that vitamin D is responsible for the efficiency of your immune system. So the T cells, the memory cells, those are dependent on good levels of vitamin D. If your levels are less than 50, 50 units, you probably don't have enough. It should be more than 50. Um, now, vitamin D is made under the skin. So if you go out for a walk, if you go for a jog, as long as you are outside, then the parts of your body that are exposed will make vitamin D. Now, for most of us, <laughs> that's just going to be our heads and our hands because that's all that's exposed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the more you cover yourself up, the less vitamin D you make. So you need to be outside for 20 minutes. Now, this is very important. So if you are, if you are Caucasian, you need to be outside for 20 minutes for six months of the year, 20 minutes a day, six minutes a day, to, to, to make enough vitamin D. If you are black, listen to this very carefully, you need to be out for one hour. Oh Lord. One hour to make enough <laughs> vitamin D. So uh, you are not going to make enough vitamin D. <laughs> you are not going to make enough vitamin D in order to, su to, to suffice. So the thing to do is to take vitamin D tablets. Mm. Um, uh, so now obviously you don't want to overdo it. So I think it would be it would be sensible to have you know, once things are a little bit back to normal, to have vitamin D levels checked because too much vitamin D can cause calcium stones in the kidneys. But vitamin D, many people are deficient in vitamin D. And I'll, I'll say, I can say this personally, I, I had my levels test tested. I told you that um, 50 is where you should be, 50 or above. I had my levels tested a few years ago and it was 33. What's and I do a lot of, I go out a lot, I do a lot of running. And it was my levels were 33. 
Um, mm -hmm. I take vitamin D tablets daily and my last levels when they were checked were 100. So, okay. so vitamin D yeah. makes a big difference. Yeah. But it's also found in oily fish, um, uh, omega-3 oils and what have you. Come on, Dawn. Robert. <laughs> Next person. Next. Next. Next person. I think Robert Johnson wants to ask a question. Robert Johnson. Yeah. I've put a number of questions on the chat, but I think one of the things that really needs to stand out is what is a concept of herd immunity? I know that the government was slammed for it, but I gather from your discussion that herd immunity may well be good. I, I personally, and this is, I would say this is um, my personal opinion, but it's also evidence-based. And the scientist who actually mentioned herd immunity, she was silenced very quickly. I don't know why. Um, so herd immunity is based on this 80% rule that I mentioned, that once you have 80% of your population um, either vaccinated or having had and recovered from a viral illness, then that virus is so diluted in the community that the 20% of people who have not been infected or vaccinated are safe. And that's the case with MMR. So once we have, once we had 80% um, of uh, parents immunizing their children, 80% of children immunized against measles, mumps and rubella, the conscientious objectors, the 20%, the that, does, that, that doesn't really matter. They're still safe. Once that herd immunity falls to 79%, and it's just one percentage difference, then you've got a problem because it can start to spread through. So I, I do think that there is um, some um, strength in the herd immunity theory. And if you look at uh, Sweden, Sweden has bucked all of the advice that is being followed all over the world. So whereas everyone elsewhere has gone into this social distancing, social isolation, if you look at Sweden, they have said, we're not going to do that. We want people to go out and to establish herd immunity. And so they've practiced some little bit of um, um, change, but they are, they've, not, they've said that people can gather in groups of 50, um, up to 50. Um, they have kept their schools open. They haven't gone to the degree that every other part of the world has, has, has gone. And yet they are not seeing anywhere near the kind of numbers that we have seen. Now, again, the scientist in me would say, are they reporting all of the figures? Um, this is Sweden and they, they are they're reputed to have some of the best um, data in the world and they're considered to be one of the least um, corrupt in terms of openness and sharing information. So Sweden should be watched very, very carefully. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Well, you have a question? Yeah, um, it's just, are hospitals actually getting 13,000 for declaring um, the diagnosis of death as COVID-19 and um, that £35,000 given if uh, they're put on a ventilator. Um, so are hospitals making money out, out, out of declaring people as COVID-19 at the top of the list rather than pneumonia or something heart related? Okay. I, 
So again, it depends on how news is reported. Now, um, if you have a need for a ventilator and if you are using ventilators, then you are using resources that means that they're not available for other severe cases. And the presence of COVID-19 mm -hmm. does not prevent other people who um, may suffer accidents, may suffer a, a brain stem stroke, um, may need ventilating. And therefore, if they, and ventilators are very expensive to both to buy and to run. So I can understand um, the, the move towards ensuring that those people, those hospitals who are putting more people on ventilators and therefore using up those resources will need to be resourced to ensure that they're able to provide a service to, to other people who may not even be COVID cases who need those, those resources. Otherwise, COVID will be claiming more deaths collaterally. Um, in terms of what you put on the death certificate, um, I'm not aware of that. Um, I mentioned earlier on that I, I have um, my own um, observations around the way in which I know that death certific certification happens because when I complete a death certificate, I put the primary cause of death at 1A. And in some cases that's very clear, that might be a heart attack, cancer, a stroke, whatever. And then we're asked to put 1B. 1B is the cause of death which is not directly attributable but might have influenced, might have caused this. So um, the main cause and then you get a secondary contributory cause. And that's how, and it's very important because it helps the Office of, um, of Statistics to, to work out trends in terms of health um, and, and causes of death. That's not arguing. But COVID, is, COVID seems to be getting to the top there. And I, I, again, that's no conspiracy. I think it's just the way in which deaths are being, are being recorded at the moment. Um, I, yeah, so there's no, I don't think there's any, no one's been incentivized for that. Mm. Mm. Anyone else? Okay, so, what, what are the symptoms, please, of, um, of coronavirus? I've done that. Oh, classically, the symptoms are um, it, it, all you need to think about is that it's a respiratory illness. So, the symptoms that you get are a fever, a cough, and difficulty breathing. So, fever, cough, and difficulty breathing. Now, some people may start with a sore throat because that is where it actually gets into your system. That is where it starts to implant itself into those cells. And then it moves along the respiratory tract down into the lungs. Um, and once you've, most of us can actually manage having lost around two thirds of our lung function and we'll still be okay, which is why people get, they're getting short of breath and they're still okay. Once you get to less than a third and certainly down to a quarter of your lung function, then you're in, you are in trouble. Um, but the issue is that people, difficulty breathing is, is quite a sinister sign. The cough and the fever, I would expect most people to get. Um, and I will, um, I've had colleagues who have fed back to me, doctors who have gone through coronavirus and have recovered. And so they've been able to very clearly um, discuss and tell me what their symptoms were. And, um, and this, is, this is 
a few people who've had this, they've said that they feel, you feel as if you're getting a cold, um, then you feel as if you're getting a cough, then you feel as if you're getting flu, and it's really like the worst flu that you've ever had, and you feel that you're going to die. That's what, that's what people have said. They feel as if they're going to die. They feel as if this is not going to get better, as if they're just going further and further down. And then they just, as if they just hit the bottom and then they start to come up again. And then, and then for a little while afterwards, they just feel very, very tired. But then I've spoken to a number of young people who've had this, and I believe that my own daughter has had this, and she said that she felt unwell. Um, she had a sore throat. She had a bit of a cough. Um, she... Um, went well for three or four days and then back to normal again so young people are not getting it to the same degree it depends on so many other factors yeah is there any more questions for the doctor any more questions uh, I've, got a quick, quick, I've got a quick one here um do you know the post coming through the door um i read somewhere on the internet i know dr google's quite naughty they talk about um, leaving the post for 72 hours because it might, you know, or if you go shopping, um, the tins that you pick up and, and the things that you pick up, you need to, uh, I don't know, spray them with Milton's or wash them off or something before you uh, uh, use them. What's, what's your thought? You know, I, I, I think that um, it's... I'm not sure about leaving things outdoors for, for a while because um, <laughs> the things might actually come into contact with it. You know, we're, we're told, I've been told since I was a child that you're never more than uh, a couple of metres away from a rat. So I wouldn't be leaving things out, outdoors, especially foodstuffs out, outdoors um, um, overnight. But I think tins, um, I went shopping yesterday and, but I always rinse you always rinse your vegetables, always rinse your fruits. You should be doing that anyway. But whether you rinse tins and the outsides of um, things, that's, that wouldn't be unreasonable. I wouldn't go as far as disinfecting that because disinfecting is <laughs> you want to get into the body uh, com in, in contrast to what um, some of our American uh, leaders might, might, might have us think. But you don't want to get disinfectant into the body. Really. Mm. But what about your post? <laughs> Because it's, it's dropped through the, the letterbox and, and the, the typical thing to do is to take your hands and open it and then uh, read what's inside, you know. Wash your hands. Wash your hands, I suppose. Again, if you're washing your hands, um, yes, you could. It's possible. It's a, it's a surface. It's possible that someone could be passing it on. Um, uh, but I, I think if you're washing your hands on this basis of every 20 minutes or so, it's not really going to get chance. The viral particle needs to actually get into your into your throat. It needs to get onto the into your mucous membranes in order to actually insert itself into the uh, into the cell. Um, and being on a piece of paper or being on a piece of um, um, of a hard surface, it would be picked up by your hands. It still will not get into you. It needs to get to your mucous surfaces. So you need to touch your face. It needs to get into you. If you wash your hands, the virus particle has gone down the drain. So I would be more inclined to wash my hands than I would be inclined to clean off surfaces of, um, of anything that comes into the house. But obviously for fruit and, and vegetables, you're washing those anyway. Can I ask a question? Yes, Sister Barbara. Yeah, so two questions really. Um, 
I, a, a friend of mine, um, Nautily, the other day went to a barbecue and a few days later had a very high temperature, sore throat, was coughing crazily, bad headache, uh, in bed for a couple of days. Would, that, would you read that to say those were symptoms? Possibly. Absolutely. Yeah. So those are, those are definitely symptoms of a viral infection. Whether that's coronavirus or not, she wouldn't know. But um, is she a healthcare worker or a key worker? I've been home for um, since this, all this started anyway. Oh, sorry, is she a key worker or a healthcare worker? Because she would be entitled to testing. Um, I think she qualifies for free testing because, yeah, she's a key worker. Yeah. So the, the person who should really be tested would be that person who has symptoms because the current test, the current test is looking at um, basically IgM, which is the antibody. When these T killer cells come along, these are the proteins, <coughs> excuse me, that are released. And it's useful if you've got symptoms because it tells you whether that virus is actually due to coronavirus. Right. The problem with this test is that it doesn't tell you it's pointless if you've had coronavirus and you've recovered because IgM, the, the, the protein, the immunoglobulin will have gone down and then it's non-detectable. What you want is something called IgG, which they're not testing for at the moment, which tells you that you've had coronavirus and you've recovered from it and you've now got these memory cells there in the background. That's the test that I would be interested in um, because that will tell me whether I've had it in the past. Okay. And my second question, I don't have a mask. Uh, I've been working from home. This, this will be my ninth week. Uh, when, I, when we were first told to self-isolate, I inhaled lots of steam, hot steam, and gargled every morning for 10 days with warm, salty water. It, would make uh, difference. it might make you feel better, but it wouldn't make any difference at all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I don't have a mask. I, yeah. I went out earlier to B and Q, uh, and tomorrow I need to pop out for a plant pot because what I got doesn't work. Uh, do I need a mask? I'm not out for very long. Yeah, like I said, if you are in a public area, if you're outside, I don't think you need a mask. Um, when I went, I went running this morning, I wouldn't wear a mask because I wouldn't be able to breathe properly, and there's no. There's no risk, even if I'm passing someone, and a lot of people pass me on a bike, um, that's not an issue. If you're in a market, a supermarket, without a doubt, it's sensible to wear a mask. If you don't have a mask, it would be sensible to do a makeshift one, as, as people have been mentioning, and just have something around you, because that's going to be better than nothing. So yes, I, I, if you have to go out, then I would, uh, in, in that kind of environment, it would be sensible. Another quick question, Dr. Steve, but by extension, if you're saying that, if, if they're saying that the, this pandemic or this virus is airborne, it's airborne, and we're wearing masks to protect it from getting into our respiratory system, and they're saying that the duration of this virus can last up to 72 hours, correct? Right, so, so the, the correction I would say is that it's, it's droplet spread, so it's not airborne, it's droplet. droplet. Okay, yeah. so, if that gets on your clothes, yeah, is that saying to us that every time we go out there in especially a crowded environment where we can't keep our social distances, should we be washing our clothes when we can't, when, when every time we go out in, in, in confined spaces where there's lots of people? Okay, so again, this, the same advice would 
follow on in terms of ensuring that you are washing your hands? Because yeah, ideally, you would say that someone, um, we, we call this donning and doffing. So um, if I go into an area where I, where, where I need to ensure that I don't infect someone, um, then I will don uh, a mask, I will don goggles, I will don a, 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 um, an apron. And then when I come out of that area, I will doff, so D-O-double-F, I will take all of those, those things off. So we have donning areas and doffing areas. And ideally that's what you do, but it's, the government is seeking to make it simple enough for people to actually follow. The more steps you introduce, the less likely people will be to follow those steps because it just becomes too much trouble, too much like hard work. Um, and ideally, you're absolutely right, ideally you take those clothes off. When I come in from work, I've been in a, in, in a potentially infected area. When I come in, I will take those clothes off, I will shower before I do anything else. Mm. You know, so I, that's because I've been in a surgery, I've been amongst other people. I don't do that when I go to the supermarket, but yeah, when I go into that situation, I, I always do that because I will have come into contact with a lot of people um, and even if I'm not coming into contact with people, I'm with other colleagues who themselves will be contacting other people. You don't know what's happening in other areas. Um, but yes, if you want to be really curious about it, that's what you would do. But it would, I wouldn't give that advice generally because for some people they would say, I can't do that, so I may as well not bother. And that's the danger. Once people get to the stage where they think, I can't be bothered, then you're in a worse situation because they won't even be washing their hands. And washing your hands is by far the most important thing. May I ask a question? Yes, Sister, Do Do Sister Dawkins? Yes. Um, my question is, um, if you've lost your taste, are you smelling? Has that got any effect to do with the coronavirus? Because some are saying if you had that symptoms, that could be a part of it. Yep. And you're absolutely correct that that is one of the symptoms. Um, and I, you know, so the loss of taste and the loss of smell. But if you, it's basically, it's down to the fact that the, the respiratory tract becomes inflamed and thickened. And so therefore, the way in which we, because we taste by smelling, because you can't then smell it because it's the, the, the mucosa is thickened, you can't taste either. You're absolutely right. That is one of the symptoms of coronavirus infection. However, there are many other causes of a loss of taste and smell. And there are many people who will have had these symptoms well before we ever knew about coronavirus. That doesn't mean that they now have it. Um, and also, if you, are, if you have a problem with um, polyps in your nose, um, if you have a cold, you can lose those, those sensations. So by itself, it wouldn't be enough in my mind to, to, to characterize someone as having coronavirus if they don't have any symptoms of cough, if they've not had a fever, and if they have no difficulty breathing. The fever is really important as well because the fever, as I mentioned before, where the cells are in, in this battle, it releases energy and that's what pushes the, the temperature up. If there's no fever, it's very unlikely that they have uh, COVID-19. Okay, thank you. We've run over our time um, significantly. Is there any last question that anyone would like to pose to the doctor before we close? Any last question? 
I've, I've got a, a silly one. How's this? Um, the the government uh, wanting year reception uh, and nursery and year one kids to go back to school. Um, is that because little children? I'm on, I'm on, a, I'm on a Zoom. Hi. Uh, is that because they think that the, these younger ones are less likely to to be affected, and and they're using them as you know, using schools as babysitters so parents can go back to work. Um, that's one way of putting yeah, yes, in a nutshell. <laughs> so, um, so, so yes, children are less likely to be affected, so you're not putting out a vulnerable group. Um, and also, there is a problem because um, teachers, um, the, 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 the teachers are now currently the people who would otherwise be working as um, as, as doctors, as solicitors, as estate agents, as company directors, um, th all of those people are at home trying to work and look after the children. Um, and it's just creating, the, the, the economy is therefore slowing down um, and they need to really safely get that back to, to, to normal. For the same reason, they will hold on to the number, of, to the people who are social shielding. So the most vulnerable people, those over the age of 70, those people with um, significant additional illnesses, we call those comorbidities, those will be asked to remain indoors for the longest period of time. Mm. Yeah, but, well, that's, I don't think we, have, we can allow any more questions because our time has run out. However, if we would like to have a follow-up, at some stage with the with Dr. Steve, part two, part two um, we would more than be happy to facilitate that. Would you be willing to do that for us, Dr. Steve? Uh, yes, more than happy to, yes, yes. yes. And In fact, I didn't, what I, 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 I should have acknowledged, and I, I did have this on my list here, but I want to acknowledge our, our pastor here and his wife, um, because you. you're, you're, you're in my top right-hand screen. And I, <laughs> But no, thank you, and thank you for, for supporting this. I think it's, as, as with all of the information that goes out, I think it is really, really important to have um, leaders um, endorsing and, and being there, because otherwise there is no, there's no real focus. I think that's very, very important. Well, we're extremely thankful and grateful for you for sparing your time and, your and sharing your expertise with us. And we ask that God will continue to anoint you and bless you and continue to use him in the service for his kingdom. And I'm sure everyone here would agree with that. Um, God bless you, sir. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone Thank you very much. Thank you. Shane of this occasion. And if you do want Dr. Steve to come back and do part two, please let us know as soon as possible so that we can make it possible. Yeah. Oh, there's one other thing I just wanted to mention is that um, I, it, there's a lot of information that is um, being released on a daily basis and I think it's often very difficult for people to keep up with it. So one, one of the things I've done is launched a, um, a YouTube channel which basically seeks to debunk a lot of the um, complex theories and to make it into easily digestible chunks. So, um, I'll make the link available through um, to, to Richard and, and, and Joan. 
Um, and yeah, if you like it, please please um, pass it on. And and if there's any positive feedback, um, please let me know. Okay, sir. Dr. Thanks. Lawrence, can you tell us what the link is at, at the moment? Is it just a, a Dr. It's, Lawrence on YouTube or? It's 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 COVID. It's it's COVID catch up, and it's under at the um, what do they call it? The the tag um, DRSML. So Dr. Stephen Martin Lawrence DRSML at DRSML. So here we thank you. Before we go, as always, we have to thank the great God because without him, nothing is impossible. So we thank him again for being here with us and for what he has revealed to us through his manservant. We just say a closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we bless you. We praise you and we exalt you. We thank you for being here. Lord, we thank you for the manservant who has given us some very good pointers from the expertise that you have granted him in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. We pray, oh God, that what we've received today, that it will help us to be more equipped, more understanding, and be keep, keep safe, Lord, as we continue to grapple with this coronavirus. We pray that we will not only hold on to this information for ourselves, but we will share it with others, Lord, so that the kingdom and the people around us, oh God, will be kept safer and be wiser for it. So, Father, as we are about to part one from another, we ask that you would protect us, guide us, keep us safe, Lord. Let it be your will, Lord, just bring us back together again. We should continue to do your kingdom work. Everything we ask, Lord, we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We say shalom, go in peace. And in Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. 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 Thank